This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. When it comes to drafting new players for the NFL, one of the most anticipated events is what is known as the NFL Combine. It actually begins today. It's a series of tests and drills that prospective players execute in front of NFL scouts and a delegation of coaches. Their hope is to examine for themselves the abilities of the players to successfully thrive in the National Football League. But many times, these tests fall short of accurately displaying a player's ability to succeed at the next level. For a player can check all the boxes and do all the drills, but when it comes down to execution, the player has to perform, and that is a dynamic that is altogether different. In Ezra chapter 7, we see the king draft a leader to accomplish a task. He has all the right measurements, but what sets him apart is not merely his acumen. It is his drive, his determination about one specific habit, a habit that sets him head and shoulders above the rest. The last two verses of Ezra chapter 7 read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, said Ezra, who put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn and glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and has extended his mercy and loving kindness to me before the king, his advisors, and all the king's mighty officials. I was strengthened and encouraged, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together outstanding men of Israel to go up with me to Jerusalem. As we return now to the book of Ezra, chapter 7, we have moved forward just a bit in the timeline. We're now in the reign of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, son. He rules from 464 to 425. So we're about 450 years before Christ, and about seven years removed from Esther being the queen of Medo-Persia. Artaxerxes, in his seventh year, somewhat randomly commissions Ezra, a priest and a scribe, to return to the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. According to the king, his job is to set up the laws and customs of God's people once again. After their captivity in Babylon, the people return to Jerusalem now in three stages. The first stage of returners rebuilds the temple and the altar of God. This construction is under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Then, about 57 or 58 years later, Ezra now returns with the second wave to reorganize the people, setting up the law of God and establishing its rule over God's people once again. Finally, the last wave of returners come under Nehemiah to rebuild the city and the walls. Now, God has been behind the scenes orchestrating all of these supernatural movements. He had very clearly put it in the heart of King Cyrus to send Zerubbabel back. This provision was according to the words of Isaiah in fulfilling the prophecy made by Jeremiah. 
these events are progressing along a timeline that God had already ordained and declared to his people through the prophets before they would occur. What would appear to be chaotic global events are foretold by God's prophets to teach us a lesson, that God orders these events, and he raises up kings and tears them down to accomplish his purposes. This is a truth that we saw clearly outlined for us through our study of the book of Daniel. God was operating on a divine timeline that was meticulously arranged and providentially ordered to return his people back to the land. Along the way, he revealed who he was while working through the shadows. While commissioning his people to rebuild the temple, providing the resources necessary to do so, he ever so patiently redirected their distraction back to the work through the words of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, after they had allowed their hearts to be discouraged because of their opposition. Then when they encountered resistance a second time, God again protected them, refunding their work through a letter found in the ancient archives that outlined Cyrus's decree years after his death. The resistance that they encountered forecasted that the Jews would not pay taxes if they were allowed to rebuild the temple. But in the end, the very taxes of that region ended up funding the rebuilding of the temple and the raising of the sacrifices offered there. If that wasn't enough evidence for God's directives behind the scenes being accomplished, witness the divine intervention of God's people through the story of Esther. The entirely accidental rise to the palace of Esther for this appointed moment to rescue God's people, coupled with the decree of essential genocide of God's people being overturned, instead now with the Jewish people's vanquishing of their own enemies, all of this was clearly ordered by God. Now comes the next phase of that deliverance. The next episode in the divine saga of God's redemption of his people from slavery. Just as God had placed his hands on Cyrus to send the people back the first time, the Lord now does essentially the same song, second verse, with Artaxerxes and his people. Artaxerxes selects Ezra, the priest, to recruit a second wave of returners. Now, Ezra was a man with the pedigree, the knowledge, and the ability to do as the king had ordered. The religion and ceremonial law of Judah revolved around the temple sacrifice and the office of the high priest. This high priest served as the essential religious leader of God's people in the line of Aaron. Ezra's name means, the Lord has helped. And indeed he had, for Ezra was a descendant of Sariah, who had been the high priest during Zedekiah's reign. Now Nebuchadnezzar had killed them both as they sought to escape the besieged city of Jerusalem nearly a century earlier. But Ezra was the man for the job because he was a descendant of the last high priest of Judah. We also learn that he was a descendant of Ahitub, the high priest who found the law of God in the temple in King Josiah's day. The discovery of the book of the law in Josiah's day prompted the last great revival of Judah's history under Josiah and Ahitub's leadership. 
Ezra was a descendant of this man. He was also a descendant of Zadok, the high priest ordained by David after Absalom's treasonous reign. What's the point of all this? Ezra came from a long line of revered religious leaders in Judah. He also knew the law. The text says that he was skilled in the law. He was a scribe. That meant more than just that he would adequately write and copy the Torah, which was in itself a highly regarded occupation. The Torah, we are told, was authored by none other than the Lord God of Israel. The people did not see Moses as its author. They saw God as its author. So to be able to write and copy the Torah was a revered occupation. The people viewed it as a national heritage to even write the word of God. Further, because they were so versed in its teachings, these scribes became the interpreters of that law, much like the Supreme Court does with the Constitution. Ezra had both the pedigree and the skill for the task. He also had the resources. The king had gone to great expense to fund this endeavor. He was given safe passage. Now this provision is no small task because traversing this desert was a perilous endeavor given that the Medo-Persian Empire was so vast. They often struggled to adequately patrol the frontiers of the wilderness that lay between Babylon and Jerusalem. Further, the king furnished a letter that gave Ezra access to the coffers of every provincial region of the empire. No one was to stop him, to hinder him, or to prevent access to his mission. Everyone was to furnish his every need, giving him whatever resources he deemed necessary to accomplish his task. Ezra had the right to exact punishment on anyone who hindered him. No one was to tax, tribute, or toll any of those he appointed. He was given the authority to raise up other leaders who acted as magistrates and judges, according to the wisdom of God, which the king saw as in the hand of Ezra. Whoever violated the laws of these judges were to be swiftly prosecuted and judged, including imprisonment, confiscation of property, and even the death penalty. The king had given Ezra everything he needed to accomplish his task of rebuilding the society of a people based on the Jewish law found in the Torah, a book, again, no one was more skilled in interpreting than Ezra. He had the knowledge, the pedigree, and the resources to do what was necessary. But despite the proficiency, heritage, and resources at his disposal, verse 10 tells us that Ezra had set in his heart, or resolved, to study and interpret the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra determined in his heart to study and consider the social implications of such law. And then once he fully understood it, he lived it himself by practicing it, and then finally teaching those statutes and ordinances in Israel, then holding them accountable to adhering to those statutes with punishment for those who broke that law. Now, there are several things to consider here. First of all, we should realize that each of us is set in the perfect context of God's story. 
God has uniquely designed us for the moment in which we have been placed into God's epic. Ezra was born into this family for this moment to do this job. And God would use every ounce of his pedigree, his wisdom, and his backing to resource those objectives. The same is true in our lives. We all have a unique set of gifts and backstory. And like Ezra and Esther before him, God has prepared us for this moment, for such a time as this. A related truth here is that God will equip us with everything necessary to accomplish that for which God has called us. Ezra had the wisdom to make the changes according to the law of God. He had the authority to make those changes under the auspices of the king. And he had the respect of the people required to make them stick. God had uniquely designed him for this moment, and he had everything he needed to do what God required of him. But here's the truth. That is no less the case in our lives. We often feel inferior, unable to accomplish the task that God has in our lives. Whether that be leading a church, or leading a home, raising kids, leading a d-group, whatever. All of us fight the question of, do I have what it takes to do this? But what if God calls you to a task? It must be his strength that accomplishes it. And so long as you desperately depend upon him, you can't fail. God does not ask you to move mountains. He asks you to be obedient, to take the next step, to do the next right thing. Mountain moving is his department. And he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Finally, we need to understand that Ezra did not rely on his pedigree, authority, or wisdom to do the task that God had asked him to do. Though each was considerable, Ezra realized the moment and he committed himself to learn the word of God, to understand the word, to live the word, and to teach the word. Each is critically important. He did not allow his knowledge of the Bible, though it was great, to hinder his hunger to study the Word. Though his knowledge was immense, perhaps the greatest in the land, Ezra continued to study God's Word. He did the hard work to understand the implications of those truths. This scribe didn't just dig into principles. He thought through how it worked in practice. Once Ezra understood the law, he did not go straight to teaching, but instead lived it in his own life. You see, there was no dissonance between his practice and his education. He lived what he taught. There was no room for hypocrisy. Then he instructed in the word, consistently raising up judges who would do the work. This pattern is what discipleship is all about. Regardless of how much we know, how many times we've been through the Bible, how long we've been in church, we must dig deeper, keep learning, keep growing, keep studying. We do the hard work of thinking through the implications of those truths in our life. We don't stop with principles. We move to practice. How does this intersect with my life? What do I do with this? Then we do it. We don't just teach it, but we live what we've learned. Then we teach it to others around us. 
We pour it into others when we release them to do the kingdom work. This was the vision then, and it is the vision now. This progression is what we are all about. So I have to ask you today, do you live this way? This question is one that only you can answer. In the days ahead, we're going to see national revival in Judah as the word of God takes root among his people. But it all starts with each one of us following the pattern of Ezra. We have a calling. We have been gifted for that calling. But we must determine to do this in our hearts if we are going to see the endorsement of God on the work. So Jesus, help us to live this out. Help us walk in this way. Help us to follow your will and learn your statutes. Not to stop with the principle, but move on to practice. Help us to apply the word to our lives, and may it change our lives, and may we teach it to others, releasing them to fulfill the calling that God has placed on their hearts as well. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.